You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series where each week we focus on helping you build safer and better performing portfolios by including trend following in the mix and where we do our best to answer all of your questions. So without further ado, good morning, Jerry, and good afternoon, Moritz. How are you guys? Great. How are you? Very well. Very well. Actually, it's a funny thing. It's um, early May, 5th of May, and we have complete snow cover uh, this morning when I woke up, which is a bit unusual. Oh, dear. Oh dear. Now, since last week's conversation with Wayne, which was absolutely great, I thought uh, we have uh, completed the month of April, uh, which turned out to be pretty solid, I think, for most uh, trend followers, building on the gains from Q1, which was uh, great for our clients, of course. Um, But the markets have seemed to completely forgotten about the troubles we had back in December. Uh, We see the VIX drop to pretty much record lows. We see their, the short positions in the in the VIX uh, hit new record highs. Uh, and of course, in the last 48 hours, we've heard from the US vice president that he's been calling for the Fed to slash rates and go and, you know, let go of the, the mandate to keep prices low and stable. So, um, yeah, interesting, interesting time. So with that in mind, Moritz, <laughs> Why don't we look at how uh, how your week was? The week was uh, was okay in terms of performance. It's been uh, it's been flat, really. I mean, without going into the the details of each market, but just you know, looking back, uh, I remember equities going up, then down, and you know, bonds up and down, and currencies up and down, and gold up and down. It's like all of all of the things just uh, moving around within ranges. Um, didn't get any new signals, didn't change any of the positions I had on. It's just been, you know, bouncing back and forth. So at the end of the day, a black zero, um, no meaningful P&L whatsoever. Uh, the emissions contract came back a bit, uh, which cost some money, but it's a really very uneventful week uh, in terms of P&L, as far as I'm concerned. But um, a positive month, slightly positive month. Uh, March was much, much better for me, but, uh, but April was okay. So, uh, it looks like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm making back some of the lost ground from, uh, from late of last year. So, uh, happy about that. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it is great to see, uh, that this recovery in the CTA space, uh, continues, uh, certainly for the trend followers, not so sure about the short term guys, but the trend followers seem to be on course, uh, so far. And, uh, yeah, April, uh, was, uh, you know, fine for us as well. Um, we're slightly down in May so far, but I agree with you. I mean, this week as a, as a week in itself has not really been that, uh, exciting, uh, you know, a little bit of recovery yesterday, Friday, um, but still, you know, down slightly for the, for the last couple of trading days, uh, in the month of May, um, no changes to positions or themes in the portfolio, either on our side. Um, you know, the week as a whole was kind of, kind of interesting. If we just look at that, um, where certainly the grains were the, the big winners, uh, along with the softs. 
things like soybeans did really well. Uh, coffee did pretty well. Um, but then you had the the, the biggest loser was uh, was corn. So even within the same sector, we had the you know the biggest winner and the biggest loser uh, actually. And then financials didn't do uh, much. I mean, softer bond prices uh, didn't help, of course. Uh, equities, I would call that, um, you know, flat overall for the sector. Currencies probably down a little bit uh, as we also saw softer uh, dollar prices after the dollar index at least had hit some uh, some recent highs. Um, but all in all, I, I definitely concur with your sentiment, uh, Moritz, that... Uh, it's not going to be one of those weeks that go down in uh, in history books, but you never know about the uh, the uh, the equity space, Jerry. You might have a completely different experience this week. Well, I think it was quite a week uh, so f- and quite months so far, but uh, it is fun to watch the equities keep going and uh, people who purport to be very interested in equities buy and hold. Uh, extolling the virtues of the S&P 500. Uh, They write a lot of stuff about how this market is defying wisdom and uh, cannot predict. Uh, The Buffett conference was this weekend, I think, and he made a lot of quotes, and I tweeted a lot of them as it relates to um, no textbook in the past 1,000 years could have told you what to do in this particular crazy environment. Uh, So once again, trend only is my favorite um, hashtag. And I think that's what, uh, of course, we advocate here is, that's right, the economy is too complex and there's too much going on and you can't look at historical relationships and even history and valuations. Nothing, None of these things are robust and have proven to be good ways to determine your position in the markets. And uh, something as silly and as simple as the S&P 500 system uh, continues to do well because it doesn't get out um, when the market's trending higher. No, absolutely. And I thought I, I only saw a couple of the comments from from Buffett. Uh, there was an interview I caught uh, with him uh, before the conference had really started. But but he did make reference to this thing that, you know, that he didn't really quite understand how, you know, the economic environment, um, you know, all the different moving parts that we have, how they could all fit in together as where we are now with you know, record equity markets uh, and 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 decent activity, but also at the same time, pretty much record low, uh, you know, uh, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, that even he find difficult to fully comprehend. So I think your point is, 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 is great. And it's obviously the point we try to make all the time that, uh, you know, having an investment strategy that doesn't need to predict anything uh, is a pretty... Uh, handy tool in the toolbox uh, for sure. I watched it yesterday. It was on uh, YouTube, the uh, the uh, Yahoo Finance channel, I think it was. And um, you know, always have this this entry as a repetitive reminder in my calendar every year. It comes up. I uh, I want to watch it for as long as we have the chance to hear those two guys. Those two guys. I really enjoy it. And um, you know, over and over again, you know what what I like about it is they they repeat it. You know, avoid. The complexities avoid the insanities. This is this is this is the first step uh, of uh, of being successful, right? And you can really you believe what they say, right? They have they have no one hundred or two hundred people sitting there in Omaha. They have probably a group of fifteen or thirty people running the thing. There's no large committees, no 
meetings or sure fixes that have to happen all over. They, they just do away with all of that overhead, which just consumes resources internally and where they don't see it's adding any value. Um, I, I just, I, I really like that approach. And, and, you know, as far as focusing on the simple things and avoiding the complexities and avoiding the insanities, I like to hear that. I mean, that's what we're trying to do too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I have to go and watch some of the, uh, the conference itself. Sounds like, uh, it's, it's, it's good to be it's always enjoyable. Exactly. It's good to be reminded about some of these things from people like that. Um, so Jerry, you mentioned you've been tweeting a lot, uh, from that particular, uh, event, but what about other things and, and what actually caught, uh, people's attention, uh, this week in general? I know we got a lot of, did, I think you got a lot of likes and retreats from the uh, Wayne uh, episode, right? Yeah, I thought uh, people enjoyed that. I know it was great to have him on and uh, I learned a lot of stuff from Wayne and uh, although he's not 100% trend following, he sort of sees the value of trends and in, 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 in his own uh uh, trading. So I did get a couple of, um, did notice a couple of tweets today from other people that, uh, I just sort of stumbled across and they're sort of talking about Wayne and, uh, you know, <clears throat> not the nicest of tweets, let's say I did. And there was one thing I wanted to talk about as it relates to Wayne and, uh, some of the things, you know, obviously he said that maybe the three of us, or I don't really, agree with 100%. It's just sort of different worldviews and seeing how they sort of all overlap to some degree and taking small losses or risk control was uh, one of the things that came up. And uh, someone uh, tweeted about Wayne and uh, quoted um, something I think Wayne said, and uh, I'd like to just talk about it, clear it up or get y'all's opinion as well. But uh, I guess at some point Wayne was talking about his trading in stocks and he said, um, the equal weights and not uh, inverse fall weights like we do. Yeah. And then uh, this person goes on to say, comma, vol isn't risk, and then followed by a lot of yeses. And so my opinion on that is that uh, it's just a mis miscommunication in a sense that uh, none of us, I don't think, uh, look at volatility as risk per se focusing on standard deviation, which penalizes uh, profitable trades that go up a lot and make a lot of money. And, uh, and so, but I do think not equal weighting is not as good as inverse weighting inverse to volatility. So how can you hold those two points of view? If all isn't risk, why do you weight based uh, on inverse of all? And of course my, thought on that is um, just trying to do something and do the best we can at understanding that, uh, especially in a very diversified portfolio, where you properly would want to put on the same bet in Euro dollars and Swiss franc and crude and the yen and the S&P, how would one go about doing that? Uh, and so waiting based upon the volatility volatility of each of the markets seems to be uh, something that's reasonable. And of course, I do it just to sort of normalize my losses and attempt to um, 
have on a, a positions in a, a lot of different markets, longs and shorts, that would have the potential to make the same amount of money, uh, maybe equal weighting stocks, even though I don't think it's correct, it's probably not as big a problem as the one we're faced with many different types of markets, uh, the ones I just mentioned. Then I set my stop based upon that ATR and um, I'm done, I'm done, no more. No more paying attention to risk or vol or any of that, well, pay attention to risk, but paying attention to volatility. So because that ATR changes dramatically over the ensuing weeks and months and it doesn't even, it's nowhere even close to what it was when I first put the trade on. Uh, so I don't know, that's my attempt at explaining how equal weighting at the entry is much different than this uh, continually focus on volatility and fall targeting and things like that. What, what are your thoughts, Moritz? <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Or like uh, Charlie Munger says, nothing to add. Okay. That's his favorite line, by the way, every time, uh, you know, Warren speaks and he answers for 10 minutes and then he goes, Charlie, anything? And he goes, no, nothing. Well, I mean, I don't exactly know. I can't remember exactly what Wayne said, but um, but, but I think there's a couple of things here. You know, to, to say that he's equally waiting... Uh, you know, or I don't know that that, you know, because you have to wait on something, even if you're equally waiting, well, how do you size your position? Is it just cash amounts or what is it based on? So I don't know if it's, it is uh, not taking into account some level of, of uh, not necessarily volatility, but some, some other measure. Uh, I don't disagree with anything you said, uh, Jerry, but, but, and I also in particular like your point about the fact that Maybe if you're just trading within the same universe, like equities in his case, then of course he doesn't have the same issues that we face because, you know, the volatility of soybeans is, can be very different from the volatility of the S&P. So, so I agree that there, there, you can't really compare uh, completely. But, but um, you know, treating markets equally is also another kind of little twist on these things. And, and that's certainly something that we do on our side. We treat them equally. So we can have the same risk in, in, in two very different markets, but it obviously depends on the confidence we have in each market at, at, you know, at, at any given time in terms of the actual position sizing uh, of it, meaning how, how many you know, sub-confirmations do we get from our trend models, you know, uh, so, but I mean, these are differences and, and, um, uh, but I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything that Wayne necessarily said that, um, that I kind of thought back of and saying, well, that seems very odd. I mean, it's just a different uh, approach to some extent. That's right. Yeah, and, I, you know, I think he, he's fully aware of the fact that even within the equities, uh, you can have stocks with um, quite different levels of volatility. I mean, Tesla and IBM, for example, right? One being high vol and IBM being relatively low vol in relation to Tesla. So if you equally weighted those, then you'd have an overexposure to Tesla. But we don't really know exactly how Wayne trades his portfolio, how the concentration, like, you know, he's, I think I remember he's like 10 stocks or something like that, right? And And how exactly he picks those. I don't remember, and maybe we haven't discussed it, but I, I, I guess he's fully aware of the fact that um, you know certain shares uh, will have um, different levels of risk, and you know maybe he's maybe in the way that he trades, the equal weighting is is okay. 
also depends on where he has I mean, his stop. Like, you, like right. you guys said, I mean, for us, with all the different asset classes and markets that we trade that are completely unrelated to each other, short-term interest rates and cocoa, it's just no way that we're going to be putting on an equally weighted notional amount on those, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then once again, he did bring up uh, the idea that <clears throat> it's far into systematic trend following and that uh, it really makes no sense from your worldview, your logic, your head will explode if you trade with a fundamental approach and you try to have on 100 positions like we would. And it's, um, you know, your 11th and 12th position are not as good as your number one and number two. You'll accept a little bit of, ah, maybe I'm wrong, and you'll accept a little bit of diversification, let's say. So you won't have one or two, maybe you'll have 10 but it's just a different worldview and uh, <clears throat> about how things are approached that makes sense if you kind of believe in a particular type of strategy, technical versus fundamental, let's say. Mm. Yeah. Great stuff. What else uh, came up in um, in your um, Twitter, Twitter feed, so to speak? Well, I think uh, going back uh, maybe beyond this week, uh, was the AQR study. I really tweeted a lot on this one. I, um, it suits my opinion, so I loved it. Uh, was the AQR study that uh, um, said, um, quote, findings suggest that trend followers, trend followings, lower returns in the current decade are due to fewer large moves across markets over this time period as opposed to a decline in the strategy's ability to profit from trends. The lower performance in the current decade is not explained by an inability for trend following to translate trends into profits or lack of diversification across global markets. There is little evidence to suggest this is a permanent structural change. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that, that actually is, uh, yeah. I mean, of course, uh, as the three of us discussed before we hit record, I mean, we're not here to debate how they do the, their study, et cetera, et cetera. We know generally when AQR does something in terms of research, it's they've thought about it um, and, and, and they do a lot more, I think, research than the people we usually see uh, coming out in the press with headlines of, you know, trend following is failing and it's not delivering on its promise and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's usually very little research behind those type of articles. So... For them to come out with a paper where they've actually um, thought about it, gone back and 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 looked at it, um, and and made some com important conclusions. I mean, to me, it's not surprising. I mean, the 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 way I think about the the markets in the last ten years, I kind of feel that there's been fewer opportunities, uh, and that generally, you know, our models have not necessarily uh, lost their touch in terms of um, you know, capturing trends. But I also have to accept the fact that there is a huge difference uh, in performance, uh, certainly on the index level. There are managers out there who have kept up with performance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the indices for trend following, um, you know, will have to accept at least that there's a big difference between uh, returns prior to the financial crisis and and since the financial crisis and and but maybe it is just explained by lack of opportunity 
Uh, but what what is your sense? I mean, what's your own uh, opinion about this, uh, regardless of what AQR? Uh, have found well one point um really like you said niels when we're looking back um over the past decade i mean there there are only a few real instances with massive trends that i can remember i mean we had the big move in the dollar was that 2015 14 15 something like that and pretty much at the same time or a bit later it started uh in, in the crude oil market right when it went down and we were all making money from those moves. Um, there have been a couple of minor ones. I mean, Palladium recently and still like the emissions contract. But overall, um, like I, I don't recall that many massive trends in the past 10 years. And I don't think there have been as many as maybe there were before the financial crisis. And that, in essence, is also the conclusion of the paper, I think. Where I say, well, no surprise, if you don't have those trends, then uh, as you'd expect, a trend-following trading system isn't going to be producing the returns uh, you get used to. I mean, could it also be the fact, and I don't know this, uh, it definitely would need some fact-finding uh, to, to, to verify it, but I mean, could it also be that maybe some of the bigger trends we have seen, uh, at least in the commodity markets, have been downtrends? Uh, Compared to uptrends, um, historically the uptrends have been a lot more yeah. profitable in all the sectors. Uh, so we have a, do have a tendency to talk about our shorts a lot because that's what's moving. Uh, I do think the the uh, up uh, the, the paper should have talked about, or maybe it did. We were sort of talking earlier. Did it fully look at the maximum? profit in a trade, regardless of the sharp ratio of a certain market or trade. And and I think that would have uh, maybe had a better conclusion that we're, are we getting the massive uptrends, regardless of the sharp or the sell-off? Because if the sell-off is too extreme and a, too big of a crash, that speaks to trend the, the nature of the typical CTA trend volume is not being uh, able to capture uh, the profits like it did in, historically. So if the CTA and, and systematic and computer-based strategies are now the tail wagging the dog, uh, we're, we're still going to be in trouble uh, and being unable to capture the trends like we did in the past. So I'm a little unsure about the if I can really go full 100% into uh, <clears throat> accepting the results of the, of the paper. It is AQR. They are super smart. Yeah, yeah, and so so maybe uh, maybe we can put this out to our great listeners. If there are some you know quantity people out there, I'm sure we we have some of those who have read the paper in, in detail. Um, like you just said, I mean, we were kind of like debating about that a bit prior to the prior to the episode, and and maybe scratching our heads: is this the right way to look at that? Taking the averages of all absolute market moves in a risk-adjusted way, and making inference to the quality of trend following. And we just, you know, said, okay, well, let's have a look at that again um, and, and and go through details. But none of us had done that. So if there's a listener out there who uh, who's read the paper and who's got a, a good opinion on that, then uh, by all means, please share it with us. We'd like to hear it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think anyone who has, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, done done the work and, and, and looked at this issue, 
um, you know, should definitely uh, send uh, some some thoughts and, and and what they found. Just send it to info at toptradersonplug.com and 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 we share the the emails uh, and and we'll um, you know if there's some good interesting points we can bring it up um, later uh, to discuss. Um, so yeah, I mean we have a big following of of people who are in 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 this space, of course. So so why not uh, put it out there? I think that's a great idea, Moritz. Yeah. What else is um, what else came up in your um, interaction, uh, Jerry? Well, uh, sort of similar to well, well, maybe a little different than declaring uh, the AQR paper declared that we have nothing to worry about. It was another paper that I stumbled onto, thinknewfound.com, about uh, factors in general and the amount of time that we would need to, from a mathematical point of view, to make a good case that they're working or they're not working. Um, The first tweet goes like this, most factors, parentheses, momentum, are so well established that the majority of current practitioners will likely go their entire careers without experiencing evidence substantial enough to dismiss any of these anomalies. There's a certain faith required to use factors we must admit that there is a non-zero probability, however small it is, that these are false positives, a fact we may not have sufficient evidence to address until several decades hence. Humility is warranted. Factors will not suddenly stand up and declare themselves broken, and those that are broken will still appear to work from time to time. So um, this is a question we get from a lot of people. How will I know? when it's time to change the system or not trend follow. And of course, I loved, uh, probably my favorite thing about Wayne's uh, podcast was his experience with his pairs system that he came up with when he first started devising strategies. And he said it worked great. Then it stopped working for a while. He came up with newer, newer ideas, other ideas. And uh, to put with the pairs, did not stop trading the pairs, but added, uh, added other ideas to it. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, the pairs trading comes back and does really well. I think he said 60% in one year. So um, <clears throat> that is a very good idea. That's the sort of answer we don't know. Uh, it takes a long time to sort of figure out if something's working or if it's not working. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but um, this did pop into my head and my filter is really low today. So uh, making a lot of money short crude in 2014 um, is definitely something that could happen, even though, and that's an example of it appearing to work from time to time. We're going to have trends. We're not going to screw up every single trend. Every single trend is not going to get crashed by the vol targeting people, even though they want to and they try, they can't even do it every single time. So we will see periods where it looks like we're it's back to working again. Uh, and maybe it is, and then maybe it's just an example of um, broken things will appear to work from time to time. But we talk about, you know, and I, and I think it is a good point that you bring up that, uh, you know, Wayne's experience with his uh, strategy. I mean, but we, we talked earlier today about, you know, Warren Buffett. I've, I seem to remember quite a few tweets this week that talked about the fact that in the last, I don't know exactly how many years, but say 10 years, Warren Buffett himself has 
you know, massively underperformed uh, his his own kind of benchmark, so to speak. Um, and um, and and so and and this is not the first time we know he underperformed significantly in the late '90s because he didn't jump on the the tech uh, you know bandwagon. So this is not anything unusual. Uh, you know, you can't have a strategy that always will be at the top of the league table. And obviously that's the whole point about diversification. And, and you know, let's not forget that diversification is what Ray Dalio, the, the most successful or at least the largest of these uh, hedge funds have contributed as the secret to his success. And he has shown that the way he thinks about diversification in order to um, maintain maybe you could say more consistent returns is trying to find, you know, 10, ideally 15 to 20 uncorrelated strategies. Because if he can do that, uh, or return streams, because if he can do that, not only does he reduce the risk uh, significantly uh, of his overall portfolio, I think he, he, he uh, in, his, in the latest news that I've seen from him, I mean, he talks about that you reduce your risk, you know, you know, by by eighty percent, or vice versa. You can, for the same amount of risk, you can get you know five times more the return. Um, but it doesn't mean that you get a lower return just because you're able to 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 reduce your risk. So, I mean, absolutely. If you just take one of those um, you know return streams out and and look at that in in isolation, like trend following, for example, or pairs trading, whatever it might be, yeah, absolutely, there will be a period where where it's going to be. Um, performing worse uh, than 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 in other periods. There's nothing. I mean, we do it on our level in terms of markets, right? We can have markets that don't make any money for us for years. It doesn't mean we're going to let them go. It just means that they're not profitable uh, right now. Absolutely. You know, diversification across systems and timeframes and markets. All of that is very important in the way that we trade, right? And uh, we, we can't just give up uh, on one of those systems because of uh, recent performance or underperformance. That would be the wrong thing to do. Um, but one thing, you know, I know we're coming back to Buffett here. Maybe this is, this is the last thing about that. But, it, you know, he chooses or, you know, Berkshire, they choose to compare themselves to the S&P 500. So that's kind of like self-inflicted. That's the, that's the benchmark. Okay, fine. And then they're happy with that benchmark. But you know, um, they're essentially an active manager comparing themselves to that system, but they have this value tilt, at least as this is how it is portrayed. I'm not sure how much value focus there still is, as Berkshire people say there is, but, you know, who is really there to say, you know, to, to, to take the verdict on that. But like you said, in the past 10 years, I've seen a chart comparing Berkshire to the S&P 500 and Berkshire has underperformed. I wouldn't say it's 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 massive. I mean, yeah, there's underperformance there, but okay. But how did they compare to a value index of which there are quite a few? I mean, you could you know AQRs, value strategy, or whatever there is, right? And um, so I wanted to. I, I took a note. I want to do that tomorrow or Tuesday, and and see how did the Berkshire stock actually compare to uh, to a value strategy. And has really underperformed that question mark. I don't know the answer, but I thought it was interesting. And I think also, I mean, now that you talk about it, um, you know, 
we have to keep in mind that on average, uh, Berkshire Hathaway is, is is leveraged 1.6 or 1.7 times. So it's even a little bit unfair just to compare it to the S&P, right? I mean, he should outperform because he's leveraged, right? So, um, but but he hasn't and it, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just, it is what it is. Um, by the way, it could be fun if we name this episode, you know, Systematic Investors episode 34 featuring Warren Buffett. I mean, I, we probably might get some more Yeah, I think he should be showing the guest on the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, if you want to tweet uh, something and get a lot of people to pay attention to it, uh, number one, uh, tweet it, uh, something about Buffett or Munger, and then criticize or seemingly criticize or question something that yeah. they've done or said. Boy, you'll get a lot of people paying attention to you. And I think yeah, you get a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I think I liked what you just got finished saying. And, and I thought, you know, this is where you want to be in life, you know, because it doesn't matter that he's underperformed. They've got 40,000 people standing in line. Uh, as I tweeted earlier or last week, uh, prof- all professing to be contrarian. And uh, the, the one thing that none of them care anything about is his recent performance. I mean, mm, yeah. and, and uh, our podcasts are full of how much we have to put up and care about recent performance. And he transcends all of that. It's philosophy. It's, uh, it's what he does. It's what they want to do. It's what, and they're probably suffering in, in the same way and could care less. It's a movement it's a, they've converted. Uh, and so where we need to convert people into trend and diversification for its own sake, not uh, performance. In a lost decade of performance, uh, we haven't had a lost decade of negative performance, but when the stocks did, uh, they were undeterred and they knew exactly what they believed in and wanted to do. And uh, it maybe takes 50 years and maybe when we're a lot older, we'll be doing this podcast and We'll be able to say the same thing, but it really is just a fascinating situation. Uh, looking at things in such a long-term point of view. Absolutely. So, if we decide to do a live event, Jerry, we'll see how many people line up. Yeah, we'll do it in Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, watch this space. Maybe we will do a live event. You never know. What else um, came through um, social media that was interesting, in your opinion, Jerry? You know, I mean, I have a lot of uh, friends on Twitter that I, you know, hang out with in real life. I've met, and so uh, some of the, I'm t- texting with them like every day, almost somebody, and they're really smart guys and girls. And they, we had a little conversation, and frequently I get these emails and texts from my friends or people, and I'll say, "Oh, I need to tweet that. Do you mind if I tweet it?" And they're like, "No." A couple times they've said, "Oh, could you please take that down?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, but uh, so I was had this conversation with a friend of mine, and we were both uh, tweeted this Bloomberg article. And the title of the article was uh, Quants Abandoned, Moving Away from Trends, Moving Away from Trends into Alternative Data. And, uh, you know, it was a video from a, uh, that another friend of mine was on, and uh, he didn't really say that, but that was the title of the article you know so i tweeted oh my friend wrote me and he goes um so quants are moving away from trends but the edge is now alternative data like counting cars in europe give me a break curious if you see it the same or different i mean you know what a layup right um i'll write back dumb dumb stuff uh that's how i see it no surprise 
No one can do it better than we can, but almost anyone can do it as well as we can if they try to do it like we do it. I wish what we do would start working again. And, and so I thought, I, I really like that. I like that. And not many people agreed, but uh, I do think that ironically, I wouldn't trade what I do and the trends and the diversification in the systems. And it's arrogant to say no one can do it better, especially since there hasn't been any recent evidence that that's the case. But it is nice to know that almost anyone can do it as well as we can if they just try to do it like we try to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, in the words of Charlie Munger, nothing to add. <laughs> Pretty good. Do you have got more, more supporting tweets like that, conversations like that? Uh, not this week. So <laughs> we, maybe we, should, we can go to questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, we got quite a few actually. So, uh, so let's do that. Let's jump all the way to Hong Kong for uh, for the first uh, question. Very nice comment uh, from uh, our listener here, and uh, who goes on. I think this was also prompted by when 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 we sent these uh, when we asked for questions uh, at the time. We we had debated whether in the length of um, of the podcast, uh, and we've got a lot of responses. So we're very grateful for uh, for those. Um, and um, and he was making a, a funny comment uh, about that before he posted his question. Uh, and he said, I followed this podcast weekly and try not to ever miss it, given the years of experience and wisdom the three of you offer. I'm also grateful for the health benefits. I listen to it week to the weekly show and will not get off the treadmill till it's over. I may even have lost a few extra pounds due to the longer formats. So, you know, maybe we just keep on our or unstructured format. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, That's a good one. question um, was, uh, uh, the past week you discussed stops and various applications to the longer term systems you use. I would love to get your thoughts on adjusting to a tighter stop in circumstances where you get a big fast move like we saw in Palladium earlier this year uh, and it reached two or three standard deviations from the moving average like 100-day uh, exponential moving average or even the 200-day exponential moving average or whatever look-back period one may have chosen in order to avoid giving back too much of the profits. Of course, one may need uh, a second entry point to get back into the trend if after taking profits, trimming the positions to trend, if the trend continues, um, do any of you exercise some uh, of these type of exits or even just trimming a position based on a standard deviation or computed set score based on dispersion or volatility? Uh, I know this is not pure systematic trend following, but in the spirit of evolution, wanted to ask the question. Um, Moritz. What say you? What say I? Um, I uh, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast. I have a uh, um, a tiny application within my trend following system. Triggers rarely, so you can accuse me of not working with large sample sizes here. But it's kind of like more like a risk management technique where if I'm entering a trade and it has uh, immediately thereafter a massive move, fast move in the direction of the, the position that I took. That may, it's not guaranteed, it, it may uh, cause me to uh, to move that stop and take some of the risk off. 
Um, so I, I kind of like see this more through a risk management lens within my system. Um, and that is really the only application I have for that. I, uh, other than that, really do not um, actually want to avoid it. Um, making the stops and, and the distances all too dynamic as a function of anything but the movement of price in like in terms of highs and lows. Yeah, good stuff. Jerry, I know you probably have some thoughts about this from our previous uh, conversations. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think it's okay to not... Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't be too concerned that it doesn't have a large sample size. I mean, I think sometimes you can sort of make a sort of a discretionary move that's sort of based upon a rule. It's And uh, just when crazy things happen... I would sort of look at it as maybe, I mean, I think it's a good topic. I think it's a good thing to have. And so I'm not sure exactly how, if there's a best way. Um, I would just say that uh, if it's a material profit, uh, your system can fail and you can give it all back, let's say. I, mean, it's, I guess it's possible. So don't let that happen. That's, I've told you, way too much good information right there. Uh, it, does it have anything to do with the number of standard deviations above a moving average? I don't know. I, I, I probably would just say probably not. I mean, if it's a small profit, but it just skyrocketed, like, um, let's see, we got some recent trades. So let's look at them. Um, hogs. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, so hogs is, is, you know, a good example. Yeah. Is it... Uh, and I'll tell you another good. So, would I care about hogs too much? Eh, do I want to override my system on a small profit like hogs? Well, I've just determined it's a small profit. You may not, but I'd say probably no. But I'll tell you the perfect chart to go to, and that would be something like uh, Bitcoin. You know, sure. if your system can withstand Bitcoin, you've sat there, you made all this money, it got crazy, you wrote it all the way up. What are you going to do when that thing kind of crashes on you? Uh, part of what the CTA industry is, in general, uh, me in, in particular, have done is to make this decision that uh, we need to be longer term. The markets are choppy. If you get out uh, shorter term, like we used to do, uh, you just have to get right back in. It'll just chop you up, get you right back in. You have to get back into the highs again. So when you do get these uh, moves where um, <clears throat> there was literally no, almost no give back, the, the sell-offs were short and uh, not very deep, and it goes right back to the highs, okay, I mean, it's a good thing you had your long-term system, you didn't really need it, uh, kept going and going, now your long-term system is, may give back a lot of uh, profit in this sort of, uh, what do you call it, um, I don't know, this sort of straight up move. Hyper, parabolic. I the word. Parabolic. Parabolic, yeah. yeah. And the parabolic move. So then what do you do? I don't have a good exit for that. Wish I traded shorter term on this particular trade. And there's your dilemma. This particular trade worked out well short term, but the majority of trades are not going to work out well if you trade them too short, if your trailing stop is too close to the market. So having something else in there, you know, you have a stop loss, which maybe you have, I'm kind of for that. So maybe you have a profit loss. 
it's a still a trend trade. But yeah, I mean, I th- kind of like. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think your example with with Bitcoin is is interesting, and I think generally to to answer Todd's uh, question here, um, I mean, I think first of all, it has to be rules, and it has to be something you test, and it has to be something you stake with. I don't think you should uh, venture into, and that's just my opinion, but I don't think you should venture into making exceptions if you want to be, you know, systematic. But but I but I would imagine. And I can't come up with a specific example right now, but I would imagine you can create a stop uh, rule that also takes into account, you know, uh, if it's a for long trade, also takes into account some kind of, uh, you know, move away from the latest high or from the highest high. Um, and and therefore, if you have a parabolic move, uh, then it will become quite a, an aggressive um, way you move your stop up. Now, it may mean that that you get stopped out and have to, you know, get back into it. But I would imagine that it's possible to devise a, um, you know, something that that is rules-based but still helps you deal with this. I understand why, by the way, uh, Todd, that you want to uh, look at the distance uh, to the uh, to the moving averages because visually that's what we see. We see the, mo- the price moving away and either the price comes back to the moving average or the moving average comes to the price kind of thing. So I understand why and, and maybe... I mean, maybe there's a rule there, but I think it has to be rules-based. Uh, that would be my my suggestion. But uh, we appreciate the question. And of course, we appreciate the very kind uh, comment all the way from Hong Kong. Next question, I'm not entirely sure where Paul is based. Uh, he might be based in the US uh, from what I can see on the uh, email address. And uh, Paul gives a little bit of background uh, to uh, what he's doing. He's uh, limited to some of the things he can trade for his uh, RA account. Um, so not uh, futures, uh, I think, and, and leverage and shorts and all of that stuff. Um, but essentially what it comes down to is a question about looking at uh, what what he calls trend strength. So he says, in all discussions, articles on trend following, I've always heard of trends considered based on trend direction and trend duration but never the strength of the trend. My question is, have any of you ever considered trend strength in your models? And if so, what do you think the pros and the cons are for using trend strength to determine what investments to make and or to determine position sizing? But Paul, if I can just start on this one, I actually think if you listen to what uh, Moritz, uh, Jerry and I are talking about um, and the way we do trend following i think you'll find that we all use trend strength and 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 to me at least it's a very important uh, and it's an inherent part of trend following because uh, if i mean the way you wouldn't have trend strength is probably if you only had one system with one look back period and one other criteria then you would either be fully long or fully short but the way trend followers in general do this is by having multiple systems, systems with or models with different lookbacks, with different uh, other criteria for getting in, whether it be volatility, whether it be price levels, and therefore you can, uh, certainly in my in my mind, you can describe what we do and how we build the positions that we do over time is by getting more and more confidence in the trends by seeing more and more of these sub uh, models being triggered 
And and that is certainly at our shop, we actually describe as trend strength. So what you're bringing up, I think, is 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 very valid. Um, but I think it's something that is already uh, being uh, being done, um, at, at least by trend followers. And I'm sure you can apply that as well to to your own trading uh, in 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 equities. Uh, there should be no problems uh, in in doing so. Anything you want to add, uh, Moritz and and Jerry? Well, I agree with what you said. It's great. Yeah, I sort of looked at that question a little bit differently. Um, <clears throat> so I, I agree with everything you've said, but I think that uh, I do get uh, there is. I think there's another way that a lot of people look at it is uh, yes, um, go deeper than just the than the systems or the multiple systems. Like, why not just have a measurement that says, uh, okay, you know, you. Um, you got 30 longs and 30 shorts uh, that are have met your entry criteria, but how about making it a 10, 10 longs and 10 shorts, and just do the 10 strongest of those 30 that your your system is set to get in, and then um, you know, effectively you would size those, uh, I guess, larger, or you could even do it. You could even do it another way, like uh, the the most the strongest market gets the biggest position, the second strongest gets the second biggest, etc. So, and that's uh, not that's not the way I do, it. and I think most people have uh, they sort of ignore beyond the, what your description was, Neil's this idea that um, you should trade, you should measure these. It's more like a it's a go or no go. If you meet the entry criteria, then we're in, and we're in until the stop loss or the, the trailing stop. If it stops going up and just sits there for a while, so what? We're not going to do anything different. Uh, we're not going to trade. Uh, we're not going to try to come up with a metric that says, "Well, these are trending, but they're super trending," and we're going to trade them larger. And I think that that's it. Gets back to just treating all the markets the same way, with the same risk and unit size, and taking all the trades and not trying to fine tune it too much to only find the strongest and the weakest. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and just one point on that. Um, like you said, treating all of the markets the same way, that's all extremely important to us on, on that podcast. And I, I've heard and I've seen examples where, you know, coming back to the, the strength of the trend or the contribution of certain markets uh, to a system where people start weighing markets as a result of historical risk adjusted performance or sharp ratio within the trend following trading system. So. You would go like like a year like 2014, 2015, moving forward 2016, markets like the dollar and crude oil would have obtained larger weights relative to other markets because they just had that fantastic year. And there, you know, when you look at the stats and the numbers, and I've seen a couple of you know people sending me the results of that, they um, they improved the performance of the system. And you go like, well, that's uh, that looks great, but essentially what it does, it it stops treating all of the markets in the same way, and it's kind of like violation of the commandments. Um, don't want to don't want to do that, and I'm not sure that what you've analyzed there, which has worked so well in the past 15 years, is is actually the right way moving forward. But, you know, you could say that also relates to the strength of the trend. I mean, those those markets, if you had those strong trends, um, probably you would start awaiting them going forward. And I, I I don't want to do that. 
this is why the cross-sectional momentum is never appealed to me because you're not handling all the trades the same way. Uh, a certain right. stock, or and you could apply the cross-sectional to any any group of markets, but uh, it slows down. It's been a nice trend. I got in on a systematic entry, and now I'm out of the trade because it's relatively speaking not uh, isn't keeping up with uh, other other markets and trades and. So I think that it, by trading all the markets the same way, there's a reason to do this. And that is because you can then pick up all the trades in all the markets, longs and shorts, if you treated them all the same way and say, aha, here's what I have to show for my big back test, 3,000 trades. Uh, and that's the reason you do it. It's not because you want to suffer all the pain we have to suffer. We're, we're creating systems that... Uh, you know, on the on the on the crude system that we all got short, and we made all this money short crude. And fourteen was this great year, I dare say. But that the system that I used to trade crude, crude itself had very little input into the entry and exit. This is the craziness that we try to explain to people um, as to how all of this works and why it works the way it does. We'd love to do it differently if we didn't know better. Absolutely. Um... So thanks for the question, Paul, and uh, hopefully you got some uh, value out of these uh, comments. Uh, next question is from Brian. Brian is uh, from Florida in the US, and uh, he has a, a question and a suggestion. Um, question first, um, would love a conversation on how, when to scale back when you uh, oh, sorry, let me start again. Would love a conversation on how, when to scale back up when you scale back position size due to drawdowns. We know that 10% is not recovered by a 10% up move. When do you get back to full position size and how? And then also he goes on to suggest, um, he says, last episode you listed a whole host of other pieces involved in running a CTA like compliance, programming, marketing, data, scrubbing, et cetera, et cetera. A 10 to 15 minute segment each week tackling one of those topics would be a great idea. So we appreciate the suggestion, Brian, and we'll certainly think about that and, and maybe we'll, we'll just take, you know, questions if we see there's a lot of questions coming in, 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 in other areas, although a lot of them seems to be kind of model related or trading related. But if you have other questions, um, we'll certainly do our best to, uh, to tackle those as well. But let's get back to the question. This is probably more for you, Moritz and, and Jerry, in terms of scaling back up and, 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 and so on and so forth. Is, is that something you practice? Have any thoughts on uh, when it comes to, to drawdowns and, and handling, um, handling those from a position sizing point of view? Well, I think it's important to have a, an approach, a systematic approach that uh, it doesn't require you to scale down often. So that would uh, pretty much a lot of that's going to be determined on your win percentage and <clears throat> the amount you risk per trade, let's say. So I think that uh, the trying to avoid that, it's it's. Uh, I don't think there is much history. You know, uh, all I would try to do in those situations historically would be to uh, reduce my risk of hitting another drawdown that I didn't want to hit. And I don't think looking back at history to see if it helps or if it works is something that's required. It's 
It, uh, if you don't get your risk under control uh, from the get-go or when you're in these losing periods, then uh, <clears throat> a sample size of one could uh, really make it difficult for you to continue. So I think that's the most important thing. And there is no good answer on when you should start putting uh, the risk back on. Like, so I don't, every, every time I've ever done it, I've done it many, many times historically. And almost every time I've cut back my positions and my trading size at the bottom, at the low, it never worked. And it's just one of those things that it'll, you'll be happy when you, if it does work, it'll work in a bad way. So <clears throat> you want to do it that way. I've definitely had friends who've told me over the years that, well, I quit doing that and I try to find ways to reduce my position size when I'm making lots of money. That's probably a better way to do it. I think that has its own problems and issues, but uh, it's, yeah, it's a very confusing subject. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any help that you're going to get from history. What about you, uh, Martz? Um, what are your thoughts? Couple of a couple of points on that. Um, like like Jerry probably uh, said. I mean, I've never been successful trading the equity curve of my of my system in in a discretionary way. That on that I don't have a good track record. So uh, stop doing that right away. Don't seem don't seem to be good at picking the lows and the highs. But so what I what I do and and what I see also. I mean, very often with you know funds you look at. They will change their trading levels just as a function of their their net liquidation value or the net asset value or you know the AUM that they have. And if they start making losses, then the next trades that they will put on uh, will be smaller and reflect the, the the lower AUM. What what I personally do is uh, is kind of like in that ballpark, but with uh, a non a small non-linearity built into that, but in a systematic way, which means that on the downside, so if I'm if I'm in, in a drawdown, uh, the greater that drawdown gets, the faster my scaling back uh, tends to be. So there is a non-linearity there that works in both ways. It also means that on the way back out of the drawdown, hopefully to new highs, I do not in the same way ramp up and size back up uh, the position sizes as fast as uh, as probably uh, the AUM would suggest. So, so that is what I do. Um, that is, uh, don't want to say that is uh, is due to you know maximizing performance. It has uh, more of a risk view to it, where you know by all means, and we spoke about that you know two uh, two episodes ago. We want to have those long track records and absolutely avoid the risk of ruining and blowing up because, you know, you only get one chance of that. Um, so we have to stay in the game and I want to be risk averse, more risk averse if I am in a hole and in trouble. Um, and, and that's why I do it. Yeah, I, that's an incredibly good point. I can't believe I didn't say that myself, but you definitely want to do that. Um, <clears throat> Another thing that I know I'm in a minority on, uh, which is, you know, if you can't tell, that's exactly where I want to be most of the time uh, as, as relates to trading questions, is um, I don't change my trade level very often. So um, I don't change it throughout the year. So if I'm making lots of money, I'm doing the same size trade throughout the entire year. I'm sitting at a blackjack table and I'm all day long making the same $1,000 bet. 
Now I know it's a bad example because the odds can change, but I'm applying my system and I don't want this up and down um, trade level changes to get in my the way of my edge. <clears throat> and so um, for me, I think uh, I would just like to have a billion dollars under management. And then on December 31st, uh, tr for the whole year, trade all the trades the same size with a billion dollar trade level, and then uh, distribute all the profit at the end of the year. So I could next year trade all the trades the same as well. So I want to trade them the same. Oh, we, we've talked so often how important that is. But uh, we don't really think about, well, you just made 20%. Now your new trades are going to have to be 20% larger. You know, that's not like a bad problem to have, but still, it's a little bit different. And, you know, to some degree, it's going to have a little positive or negative impact on uh, your systematic approach. And is this something you were taught back in the day by, by Rich? Or, or is this something that you developed yourself? Uh, because it is, as you say, it's definitely different to what most people do. Yeah, no, I think I was uh, definitely taught that, of course, and uh, just became more extreme about it over the years, having uh, tried to update it, quote unquote, update that idea with my own ideas and seen it kind of fail and just uh, sat back and thought of it the way I just described it. Um, you know, because, you know, uh, and of course, all these analogies fall apart at some level, but this is definitely something that can happen, especially if you're if you had a really good period or a really bad period where your trade level and the trades, you cannot really um, handle the trades differently depending upon the trade level and the size of the trades. So, but you know, you can definitely get into a situation where you can bet a thousand dollars in the morning and then in the afternoon, since you've made so much money, you bet 2000 and uh, you could end up losing for the day when in fact uh, it's only due to the fact that you had a, bad afternoon and you mm -hmm. traded twice as large. Overall, you uh, made more in the morning than in the afternoon, but this material change in your trading size can really um, play havoc with the profit, with the money that you take home mm -hmm. or that you don't take home. Absolutely. Um, thanks for your thoughts. Uh, and Brian, hopefully that, um, you know, is a different perspective uh, and, and something that, uh, you know, tackles uh, some some of the things you expressed in your question and thanks for the suggestions of course uh, next question is from uh, Sanjay Sanjay it's his first question he comes and actually uh, funnily enough it's a little bit related to the article we talked about with AQR so let me try and read the question here um, my question relates to the lack of trends in the past 10 years. This is the new normal. Is is this the new normal? Sorry. AQR study showed that trend following can still extract gains as long as there are a few major trends like 2014 being a recent example. But with the exception of 2014, most of the years there have not been many trends. The reason given for the lack of trends is central banks suppressing volatility. Question number one, apart from central banks, are there any other reasons for the lack of trends in the past 10 years? Question two, if it's primarily the Fed, ECB, BOJ doing QE, 
it doesn't seem likely that they will stop. The Japanese have been doing QE for 20 plus years and with short rates closes, uh, uh, closing in on zero, central banks don't have many bullets, no headroom to cut rates, so QE might be the only game in town. Therefore, volatility suppression and lack of trends, uh, question mark. So he's just asking for our thoughts on that. And finally, what are some of the indicators that can be looked at which would be a good proxy for the environment of trends. I already look at Nils's indicator, the trend barometer, um, and he looks at commentary from uh, some of our firms in terms of correlation to dial down the leverage if correlation is high. However, these can change from month to month. I was wondering if there are any longer-term indicators that might be good proxies for the secular environment for trend following. So, interesting questions. Um, what are your thoughts about this, which is, of course is very relevant uh, and something I, I certainly feel uh, we we come uh, in contact with from from different sides in terms of uh, you know people wanting to gauge um, how we as an industry uh, will fare in this uh, unusual environment, and especially if the environment uh, is there to uh, you know will continue. What are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I by the way, Niels, I like your uh, trend barometer. Okay, thanks. And uh, it's it's on the website, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. Now, but uh, so the way what 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 I like doing and the way I go about observing the trends and you know what's going on in the market is really sorry to say that, but I'm such a simple mind. I just look at the charts. That's what I do. I look at the markets, I look at the charts, I look at them, you know, in different type of granularity. And just by observing, visually looking at the thing, kind of like tells me, is this a trending environment? Has there been a trend uh, or not? I, so I don't, I don't get any more complex than that. It's really just looking at the thing. And, um, and then to the, uh, to the many other questions that, uh, that we're asked, I mean, as you know, uh, we'd like to have that crystal ball. We don't have it. We don't, you know, we don't forecast anything. But um, yeah, I mean, central bank policy, just this weekend, I read a, an article written by Ray Dalio, uh, always like reading uh, his things. It's called Monetary Policy 3, MP3, where he goes, well, maybe there is a need for the fiscal and the monetary policy uh, to work in harmony and kind of like, you know, be, be, uh, be intertwined as opposed to, you know, what we currently have where they are run separately, you know, one by the government and one by the central bank. And so, you know, what, whatever it is, I mean, it, it could be, yes, that, you know, central bank policies over the past uh, decade and, and for Japan even longer has suppressed volatilities and central banks are out there keeping volatilities low, which isn't a good environment for us. But I mean, what, what, whatever it is, um, the future may be the same. It may also be radically different because we're moving to new type of policies or new systems. And, you know, we see certain developments, you know, on the political side, I definitely don't want to go into that, but, you know, um, just things becoming more extreme and opinions being voiced. And who's there to say that, you know, not in a few years we'll have a very, very different environment, both in terms of markets and, and in politics that we'll see 
massive trends and we'll be there to to profit from that um that that is a possibility as well as the kind of like chugging along keeping vol low type of environment i just don't know but the thing i know is that um or you know the, the way i think about it is, is in order to be prepared for whatever change there is or whatever non-change there is i want to stick to my system because i really trust that it will give me the best odds of controlling risk in those markets and having a good chance of uh, of making money in the long run. Yeah, that's right. And surviving everything we do is, I think, to a large degree, uh, how can we survive with uh, proper leverage, small losses, longs and shorts, lots of diversification. Oh, and thank you, it happens to make money as well. So that's nice. Uh, <clears throat> of course, we haven't done made a lot recently, but... Uh, and I'm uh, not going to go on record. I mean, you know, I just don't think uh, I don't like fundamental analysis. So I want to be kind of true to that uh, and say I am not going to um, uh, disagree, but I'm not going to agree that it's the Fed's fault. I don't know whose fault it is. I don't really care. It's just something I don't have to have an opinion on. Uh, why would I have an opinion on that when I don't need to? Um, <clears throat> because the excuse. It's not got a good excuse. Uh, you're paid to figure this stuff out for me. Trend following adapts. It uh, evolves. It's it's ready for things that have never happened before. You just follow the moving average or the breakout. You get yourself in the right situation with the right positions eventually. And so why are you coming up with these excuses as to why it hasn't worked? And uh, uh, that's a far cry from saying, hey, there hasn't been a lot of trends. We you know, and, and that's for the clients to decide. Well, your whole system is based upon the amount of trends you've had in the past, and you can get away with a 40% win rate because there's been these mega trends and your parameters are uh, adjusted, optimized based upon the past. But then going further and saying, uh, it's the Fed, it's zero interest rates, whatever it is, I don't know. We're kind of paid to not uh, to do our best and not, um, I really don't know. I don't want to pay attention to fundamentals. I mean, I, I completely agree with uh, both of you, actually. Uh, and let me specify that I think Jerry is, is completely right in saying it doesn't really matter uh, the, the reason, right? And, 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 and of course, this comes from, uh, you know, a world where people go on CNBC and Bloomberg every day and try to explain why things are happening. But in our world, it doesn't really matter why. Um, it may be the Fed. It may not be the Fed. Um but but the and and but but I think the 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 other uh, side of the coin here is uh, as as I think Moritz uh, talked about earlier, diversification, right? So so even if we may see some sectors of of the of the markets we trade being impacted by some forces or just having a period where there are fewer bigger trends, um, you know, as diversified uh, managers. We should, you know, we should be able to find other opportunities. I mean, we 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 talked about it earlier today. We we saw lean hogs go up by seventy five percent in the month of March. We we've seen palladium uh, have a big run last year. It was energy. So, and I can only speak for 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 the firm that I uh, you know work with, and and that is, we have not seen a degradation of our returns in the last ten years compared with our thirty five years prior to that. There is no difference. Our returns, we've actually just 
putting the final touches on the study on of this, our returns are pretty much in line, especially when you um, take into account that we don't include interest income uh, in our composite returns um, since 2007. We stopped doing that. So what you see when we publish returns is just pure trading gains. And and as I said, they're not, they're not different um, uh, than they were prior to 2006 or prior to 2013 over a certain period of time. So, so, but, but I think the reason why this comes up is I think the, and, and I, I know I go on about this, uh, you know, from time to time, but I'm concerned about the returns our industry is delivering, but it's because people choose to, to, to go for size rather than returns. I think that's a bigger problem because when you go for size, you limit the universe of markets you can trade and then clearly, and and they all become, uh, you know, uh, linked to the financials, meaning the currencies, the equities and and, and the interest rates. So clearly if you have, you know, fiscal uh, and monetary policies that impacts those three sectors, then I do agree that that could be a part of the explanation as to why returns for our industry at least have gone down and why they may continue to be low as long as uh, the central banks uh, are active. But, you know, so I agree with both what Jerry and, and Moritz has to say, but I think we we just have to do what we do. And, and I think this is why diversification is, is such an important part of, of the success of trend following. A lot of people don't talk about it. They talk about, well, it's the entry or it's the exit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of books are being written and, and, and courses are being sold and software is being sold that make it sound like you can take the trend following concepts, apply it only to equities, and you're going to be massively successful. I don't know that that is true. I think the secret to success in trend following will lies within the diversification uh, because we certainly on our side have experienced uh, many years where one sector, for example, equities, did not produce any returns. Now, I'm, I don't, we don't trade single stocks like Jerry does, and maybe you can better get the diversification when you trade single stocks. I'm not, not trying to be an expert on that, but I'm just saying in general, I think the secret to, to trend-following success lies in, in, in diversification, and if you apply that, then you are less... Um, uh, sensitive to whatever the central banks might uh, decide to do. Yeah, but I think that's true. I agree with all of that. I, you only um, even come up with the idea that applying trend following to stocks only uh, is even an idea because uh, number one, it's everybody focuses on stocks. Number two, it's it's been the best trending sector. So. If, it, if that wasn't the case, they'd be focusing on currencies and, you know, or commodities. And so if we had, since 1982, if commodities had a, all you had to do was buy a commodity index, then we'd be talking about commodities now. And why are you wasting time on the other three sectors? So it's just peculiar to America or just in general, investors invest in stocks. You guys are weird with all these other things. But when we do well, and prior to uh, you know 2000 or 2008, not only did uh, diversified trend following uh, have lower risk, it made more money than stocks only. And uh, so I think that uh, it's just peculiar to the time, pulling out the best market, which uh, performing market, that happens to be everyone's favorite, but it's never going to, it's still going to 
you know, be very similar to instead of an 8% return and a 50 plus percent drawdown, maybe it's 8 and 25 or 30, which historically we can do a lot better if we trade all the different sectors long and short. Absolutely. Actually, one thing that I came across, uh, and I'm not entirely sure where I heard it, but I thought it was an interesting, something I hadn't really thought about. And and that was, you know, uh, if you, I'm sure you remember, uh, you know, I don't know, is it 10, 20 years ago that uh, Jim Rogers came out with, you know, these commodity indices and and there's a, you know, a lot of fuss about it and um, and people should have, you know, long commodities as part of their asset allocation portfolio. But in reality, you know, these long-only commodity products have not really done that well. Um, and then someone came up with the comment, which I thought made a lot of sense, that actually long-only commodity uh, products or strategies shouldn't really work that well because there is so much innovation from technology that actually makes uh, long-only commodities not a, a particular good strategy. On the other hand, you really need to trade commodities long and short to have a chance of making uh, any real money over time. Um, have you ever thought about that or have you come across that argument? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I understand the question. I think the point is that, for example, we'll say, you know, we think that, say, prices of corn would continue to go up and you should have a long exposure to commodities such as corn. But actually, the counter argument is saying, well, technology is going to come in and it's going to be even stronger in terms of making, you know, efficiency gains in terms of corn and therefore prices of corn may not go up, uh, you know, may in fact may go down because we're getting better and better at at producing these uh, commodities. I'm not sure it's true with all commodities. There could be some commodities where there's definitely limited supply. Um, we know that. But, but just generally, there was really technology that made long-only commodity investments uh, not a particularly good I idea. And I've never thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I, I, I can see where that where that's coming from. And uh, it's it's a fact that, you know, the production of commodities and the way commodities are produced, corn, meats, all of that, the efficiency of that and the has has increased so much, you know, fertilizes all of that, right? So we're we're able to produce much more uh, every year essentially than than the year before, uh, give or take the weather, right? But at the same time we're also consuming much more you know, uh, population growth, uh, people eat more meat, all of that. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure about, I, I can see that, you know, uh, where that, the, the driver of the argument, I'm just not so sure that I agree. But what I want to say is that I, I think commodities are definitely a trading market. I mean, you do not have, as you have in equities that kind of like, you know, tailwind for the long run that, uh, you know, equities, um, you know, have that long bias, they tend to go up, that that just isn't true for commodities, because, you know, there, it, it, it depends on so many things, like who's producing what, what are the prices relative to other commodities, uh, all of that. So really, commodities is, is, you know, I don't see the long only side of that, it really is uh, long and shorts. Yeah, and I, I left that part out of my uh, statement, which is uh, the third part, which is uh, stocks, not only they're partially loved because uh, we have this big bull market basically since 82-ish and uh, or, you know, since 09. And then uh, it's it's the best thing out there. It's free. It's, 
it's a systematic type approach with this S&P 500. So, uh, I mean, it just can't get any better for that one sector. And uh, so once again, I'm not really that, I guess, the whatever the fundamentals are. I mean, I guess I'm not going to rule out the possibility that we could have a 10-year bull market in commodities. And uh, I remember uh, watching Wall Street Week when I was in my 20s in the early 80s, and uh, probably the most famous uh, guy uh, in the stock market, uh, I can't think of his name there, but he's a really famous guy. And uh, he basically got on Wall Street Week and would say, uh, stocks are going up because of inflation, because it's going to, uh, prices are going up, so stock prices will go up. And of course, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> Templeton, <laughs> oh, uh, John right, Templeton. Yeah. And so uh, it's the opposite of that. Uh, as inflation goes down, rates go down, and the present value of future earnings goes up. And so, <laughs> I mean, you know, he was right, but for the wrong reason. And uh, so, I don't know. I'm not going to be a part of a fundamental discussion. And uh, and I certainly don't believe uh, in uh, this tailwind and the historical returns and stocks go up. As we've said uh, many times, the countries where this is turning out to be true as time progresses is getting lower and lower, fewer and fewer countries. Now, uh, is the U.S. going to be alone? Yes, the U.S., if you invested, it continues to make new highs every now and then and 8% return or whatever, and this is the best investment. No, 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 no. Historical returns. It's historical returns. Yeah. And I'm not going to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of investors thought that Japan was going to be the best investment when they bought it back in the late 80s, and, and they're still uh, uh, way, way, way underwater, you know, 25, 27 years later, so uh, or even more. So, yeah. And these, and these true believers of evidence-based investing, they don't address this either. You know, they... I watched a video the other day, and they're on there going on about it and uh, about how, well, well uh, that people want to throw in Japan. Yeah, we want to throw in Japan and other countries as well. I don't know, Italy, Spain, I don't know. You guys know those facts. You've mentioned it on the podcast. And uh, so their final conclusion to this was, what are we going to do? <laughs> That's evidence-based. Like, well, if we don't pretend that Japan doesn't exist, if we don't pretend that uh, – so there's lots of countries around the world that the market doesn't have a tail when it doesn't keep going up. They're immune to uh, humans, humans uh, making bad decisions. What else are we going to do? Well, we've told you what else there is to do. Uh, diversify and go with the trend. Absolutely. Did you want to add anything, uh, Moritz, until or, or, or? Yeah, about about the Nikkei because the Nikkei is uh, a different animal than the uh, than the Italian market. Um, just you know the, the technicality to be uh, to be precise here. I mean, the Nikkei is a price index, and when we look at the chart, absolutely correct. The thing is still massively underwater, right? When you look at the net total return index, which includes dividends after withholding tax, um, the thing is uh, out of the drawdown. So it's just. Uh, uh, for the Japanese listeners, uh, we're not bashing your market <laughs> all too much. It's, uh, you know, with dividends included, um, you're now slightly above zero, uh, which, you know, it's, it's not great, but at least not in a drawdown anymore. 
Good stuff. Um, okay, so uh, we have so many questions, and I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them, but I'll we'll go on for a little while longer. Um, and the next one, which we, of course, always have to deal with, is from George, because George is helping us and helping you, the listener, a lot in the background. So we are very, very grateful to everything that uh, that he does. And, and this is, you know, um, it's kind of a question, I guess, but it's something that... Uh, that uh, came up in an email um, and uh, George uh, says, I'd be interested to hear everyone's thoughts on data with regard to back adjusting versus not, data cleaning, best vendors. I think good data is crucial to model building, but is often overlooked since it's not very sexy. And many issues result from data choices. If you don't use back-adjusted data, do you allow contract role gaps to impact the trend calculation? If you do back-adjust, what method do you prefer? Simple, Panama, which I'm not even sure what that is, unfortunately, George, uh, etc. So so I guess uh, the topic, completely different from what we normally talk about, but, um, you know, data and um, how we how we go about dealing with data, um, so to speak. I mean, I can start on this one. Uh, I mean, I think from my perspective, um, we do use um, back-adjusted data. Uh, We use different uh, vendors and we compare them to make sure it's clean. We have automation to help us with cleaning the data, making sure uh, it is the right data every single day. Um, But... In general, and and I think we may have mentioned this before, but at least one source, um, and they're not sponsoring us or anything like that, but I mean one source uh, that I've used for for many years for my purposes that I think has been pretty reliable and where you are able to choose uh, different types of back adjusting and so on and so forth uh, is CSI, and it's it's also pretty affordable. So that's would be my experience uh, in terms of of data. I don't know if you can, as a trend follower, not back adjust. I think you the the gaps when when a contract rolls, especially in the commodities, will be, you know, uh, create crazy signals uh, in in your model. So I think you you have to back adjust. But what uh, what do you think, uh, Jerry and Moritz, about uh, this issue that uh, George brought up? I think back adjust is necessary uh just in a simple way that you know you you roll the contracts and so it's more like a, you're in a v uh, so you you know when you roll the contracts you know uh change your lead month in your data and hook them together uh, it certainly works fine in currencies and uh interest rates maybe except the euro dollars short-term rates you probably don't want to do that um and then stocks you know you need to include your Dividends, I think that's important. Um, commodities trickier sometimes. Uh, old crop, new crop doesn't that reality does not fit in with uh, back uh, back adjusted necessarily. Uh, I, I agree with the the uh, process that Neil's explained as it relates to cleaning it up and doing the best you can. I think obsession over data is misplaced, especially from a trend following long term trend following point of view. Most of the data, you're not even going to, it's not a new high, it's not a new low, it's not really going to impact you if it's off by a little. I wouldn't freak out about it. CSI is a really good choice. Yeah. Any any other thoughts, uh, Moritz, on, on, from your point of view? 
Love CSI. Maybe one thing that that I can add there um, with regards to the the back adjusting, and and maybe this is what George meant with the simple or Panama style is there are commonly uh, uh, two different types of back adjusting um, futures data. One is by back adjusting for differences. So you have the difference between the old contract and the new contract, and you adjust the historical price series that you've generated by that difference. That, by the way, is what I do. And that is what I think is very applicable with respect to my system, because this is how I can trade it. And there's another method, um, which is adjusting by the ratio of the old contract to the new contract. So rather than the difference, you adjust by the ratio, which, you know, I don't want to say is 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 not, well, it, it's theoretically tradable in, in, you know, in a specific instance. But in general, you cannot trade that ratio because it, you know, ends up creating fractions of contracts unless you're lucky and it doesn't. And... And, and so I don't do that, but that option exists and I've seen people do it that way. I'm not sure why they do it. I use back adjusting for differences and uh, that's good enough for me. I don't think there's a, can't think of any ways that you can get an edge in the markets. Uh, my system is better by the way that I adjust. Once again, it's all about being consistent and, and, uh, I looked at data recently, and it was uh, in gilt. First, I was just looking at the gilt market, and one f- one service uh, s- spread a couple of days early, and it was material difference. I mean, you know, stuff happens. Just be consistent and always use CSI, or always do your process. And I don't think uh, <clears throat> there's any way to. And another benefit is that uh, unless you use um, if you use moving averages and breakouts and ATR, then the back-adjusted data is the, produces the same results as the day that you were actually trading that particular market, or all your back tests remain consistent. The only kind of irritation that you may see is that, for instance, in something like crude, uh, the back-adjusted prices of crude in the 80s or 90s is negative, but the the integrity of the chart is the same. The high minus the low is the same. You're going to produce the same trades on your back test. Yeah, good stuff. Hopefully that was uh, useful, uh, George. Uh, now, I think in the interest of respecting everyone's time, we've been going on for an hour and a half by now. Um, so I think we will push the uh, next uh, six, five, six questions we have until... Um, next week so so uh, you know so so to Todd and Paul and Brian and Sanjay and George thank you so much for the questions we we had this week and then uh, for Brian Kevin James Rodney and Sam uh, we're going to get to your questions uh, next week um, but keep them coming uh, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com we uh, we love to dive into this and it helps us also uh, figure out uh, what are the um, you know what are the important points uh, when it comes to to trend following that um, that you're facing uh, and challenges and so on and so forth. So we we appreciate that. Um, why don't I do a quick run through as I normally do of the um, of the indices where we are, and then you can think of any other things you want to bring up before we wrap up um but as of thursday um so that would have been may 2nd uh i think 
uh, we had the B top 50 down 61 basis points for the month of May, up 4.28 for the year. Uh, SOCGEN CT index down 47 basis points, up 4.23 for the year. SOCGEN trend down 79, 79 basis points, up 6.18 for the year. SOCGEN short-term trading index was flat, uh, down 2.10 for the year. And the Bridge Alternatives Index was down 0.33, up 3.84% for the year. But I do think uh, that uh, Friday was a good day. So again, these numbers are a little bit uh, early um, since we don't get them reported until Monday. Um, anything else um, that caught your attention uh, this week? No, but uh, definitely looking forward to uh, getting to all those questions next week uh, when we speak again. Absolutely. Um, and um, what about your slogan, Mart? Have you completely forgotten about that? Well, you know, have a good uh, have a good week out there, everyone. Happy trading, of course. Have a great week. Uh, enjoy the markets. Yeah. What about you, Jerry? Anything else? Did you? Uh, no. Um, um, <clears throat> nothing to add. Thank Nothing you. To add. <laughs> yeah. Great. I mean, on that note, we'll we'll wrap up this uh, week's conversation. We hope you um, got some value uh, from it. And if you want to give something back to us, all we ask for is that you share the podcast with one like-minded friend. From Jerry Morris and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next week's episode of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.